we see a shortfall coming from the current four BCF per day, um, billion cubic feet per day, to around 6.6 in the next 10 years. So this is a shortfall of really as much gas that is being used today, we see that shortfall developing in the next 10 years. This is really significant. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. Over the last few weeks, um, we've had a couple of expert conversations in Urdu, 15 to 20 minutes long, looking about the gas crisis in Pakistan, which this year and this coming winter will be the third consecutive year in Pakistan where there will be or expected to be gas shortages. In the last few days alone, a media storm has been kicked off over whether Pakistan is buying more expensive LNG compared to the long-term contracts in Qatar. And for the listeners who've been following this sector know that for the last few years, the PTI government, when it was in opposition, actually poo-pooed the Qatar deals and said these were expensive contracts. And now, in fact, the spot prices are above those long-term contracts and Pakistan needs that LNG. Um, but there's a lot of controversy in terms of why this LNG was not bought uh, when it was cheaper earlier in the year because of COVID, etc. This is a very complex industry. And so to understand this very complex industry and sector, I have an expert with us who can offer us a very quick overview of how this industry functions, what are some of the key things people need to be aware of, and then we'll talk about uh, what's going on in Pakistan specifically. So I have with me Laura Baines-Clark. She is general manager and part of Shell's global leadership team that manages the company's LNG portfolio. She has deep experience in this sector in both trading and origination for LNG. Um, she has bought and sold LNG herself, managed arbitrations, pricing reviews, and supported companies and countries um, across different geographies to understand what they need to do in the LNG sector to grow it sustainably in their relevant economies. And so she's also part of uh, Shell's LNG trading strategy. So a, a wealth of knowledge, uh, expertise that most of us uh, don't have access to in Pakistan. So this is going to be a very interesting conversation. And also, Laura has um, a long history with Pakistan as well. She was there as an infant, uh, did her schooling in Karachi, and has worked as an adult in Pakistan as well and travels frequently to the country. So she understands the Pakistani market uh, as well. So Laura, welcome to Pakistanomy. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. So I want to start. Thank you. Yeah, sure. no, it's great to have you. And I want to start with this, you know, very complex sector, which most people don't understand. In fact, just a couple of days ago, there was this media storm because people from the government who came to talk about LNG deals actually got their numbers wrong. So it's like people are confused. So I want you to first begin with giving the listener an overview of the value chain of this sector and how does it actually function around the world? Sure. Okay. So let me just start then with the basics and then I will try and slowly build. As you say, it's actually quite a complex market for various reasons. So let me first start with the kind of the broad brush, the bigger overview of the value chain. For LNG, you're basically getting gas out of the ground. There are different ways that you might do that, but basically you're you're um, from a from a gas well or an oil and gas field. You um, then produce the gas. We then um, process it um, to clean it, to strip it of other things that we don't want to be putting through our liquefaction plant. When you put it through the liquefaction, you're putting it through a cryogenic, like a huge plant, a cryogenic uh, machine, which then 
um, brings it down to 162 degrees. So it brings it into a liquid form. And by doing that, it also shrinks the volume by around 600 times. So you, you're deep freezing it, and then you put it into storage. Um, and, the, and then actually the storage is kind of constantly being pumped through this liquefaction plant. From the storage, it's then put into a ship and then transported around the world. It arrives in a regas terminal. There are two, largely two main types of regas. One of them is where you build one onshore, and the other one is where you have maybe a, a ship that has been converted, and so it's floating, and it's taking the, the um, LNG, and it's regasifying it. So there are two different types of models. I'll talk about that a bit later. Um, so effectively, it's a bit like if you take an example maybe of water. So you're taking an example of water, and it's a bit like if you are taking, uh, you, you, you deep freeze it, so um, this is what we do, and then you put it into a regas, you move your ice cube, you stick it somewhere else, you regasify it, and you bring it back to a water state. Now this is a little bit different because we're talking about bringing gas into a liquid, but that's roughly in a high level um, way of what we, the, little, the LNG value gas chain. Now, one of the things that I will say about this is that when you are developing LNG and you're making LNG, I made it sound relatively simple, but it's actually an extremely expensive enterprise. So you can, um, we've had LNG plants that have ranged from anywhere between 10 to $50 billion to develop. So a, a huge amount of funds are needed for that. And, you know, the, uh, part of that dynamic, which is makes it a little bit different to other commodities, is that if I'm an investor or I'm, a I'm going to lend money into this project, what I want to see is a return on, um, I want to see a guaranteed income stream, for example. I want to make sure that this is actually going to sell and I can see um, a revenue stream coming. And because of that dynamic, the LNG industry has been underpinned with long-term sale and purchase agreements, so SPAs. Initially, some of them started 20, 25-year agreements. We now have seen that number come down. But really, generally, 80% of most LNG plants will have had their um, LNG sold and uh, in a long-term capacity so that they can take, uh, so they can take to the next level and they can be developed. So that is a really fundamental reason when some people say, well, why are they all these long-term LNG? Why can't we just do spot or five years? Actually, the industry needs those long-term contracts to be able to develop the LNG liquefaction plants. So then if we say, okay, so you've got the long-term, fair enough. So you, we now have also mid-term contracts. That's really re relatively recent development. I would say in the last 10 years or so, um, Although most deals in the market are, um, even until recently, the last 10 years or so, most, most deals have an average length. The average deal has an average length of about 10 years. So we're still looking at a, a market that is running largely on, um, on long-term, mid-to-long-term mid to deals. Last year, the LNG market had around 30% was sold on spot. So that's roughly 1,600 cargos. The rest was termed up. So um, to give you a feel, that's, uh, that's, we see the market growing and also we've seen spot and LNG, uh, like a more liquid market, certainly developing. Um, but that's still, um, at, as a percentage is growing, but we're still roughly around 30% as of last year. So uh, it's quite a different structure to maybe some of the other commodities um, and some of the way that we hear or imagine, we know of other markets working. 
Um, there are also some, um, so maybe if I go, if I touch a little bit more on the spot trading. So when I'm looking for a spot cargo, um, I can come to the market and really six years ago this happened that um, a, uh, a Middle Eastern player put out a tender and nobody put in an offer. Nobody came to the table because there just wasn't the liquidity in the market. And to be able to get that liquidity out was either too risky or expensive and it was not something they wanted to play at, play in. So there was like, there were phone calls saying, please just make, put a number or something. So the liquidity in our market has really can, has, has, has changed um, in terms of how easy it is to find or not find a cargo. And now it's much easier and typically most buyers have more options because there are more cargoes available. However, in a, in a, in a market of more cargoes, more buyers, more sellers, the sellers also will have options in terms of the way that they look at a particular contract or potentially a particular country risk or risk in a contract and they will look at their options. So if I have, um, you know, I will view as a trader those those kinds of contracts, the differences in contracts, and I will price them differently. This also makes the contractual environment LNG quite different because it's not that there's one LNG contract or one LNG price. Um, as a trader, as a buyer or seller, I will be looking at what are the terms of this deal and what, what, how am I going to price it? So that's the first thing that I would like to say something about the spot market. And I think this is also a dynamic that has played into the spot market for Pakistan. So this is really helpful. And, and I want to maybe ask you a couple of questions. So what I'm gathering from sure. your explanation is that this is not like me going on the mercantile exchange or the commodities exchange and buying futures for oranges or wheat or oil. The LNG market works in a very different manner, number one. And number two uh, was that this idea of the way the deals are structured globally, where they skew towards long-term contracts, continues to be the case. Is that correct? Yeah, so we're certainly seeing a shift. So it used to be that many of the contracts are 20, 25 years. That average length has certainly come off. And so it's now roughly 10, but we also see shorter, so five years, seven years. Um, but there's still, as an underpinning, we still see that as projects need to be able to get their investors behind them to go to the next level and to bring the LNG to production, that they still need those long-term um, LNG contracts. And so it's always this kind of this market trying to find itself with the buyers and sellers needing to work it out. Like, OK, what do we do? Because, yeah, to, to try and to try and bridge that gap. OK, mm -hmm. so now let's move to, OK, the gas has been taken out. It's been liquefied. It's on its way yeah. to a port. Let's yes. say it's on its way to Karachi. Yes. So how do things do then work from Karachi onwards? Like, how does it go into the system? Okay. And how do countries set yeah. that up? Great, thank you. So. Um, there are two ways, largely, as I was saying earlier, that LNG arrives into a country in a regasification unit, let's call it. So one of them is where you have a floating storage and regasification unit. So it's, it's, it, we call it an FSRU. And as you can imagine, floating um, is because it's actually literally floating. It's a ship, a vessel that has either been bespoke, built to do that job, or it's a vessel that has been converted to do that job. So um, you have the ship that then comes along shore 
or offshore or onshore, there, there are actually different ways, it's a bit technical, I won't get into it, that that can be done. And then you have the infrastructure that needs to attach the ship to the shore, right? So, um, uh, so the berthing, the, you know, all the different parts, the metering system, there's actually a fair amount of uh, facilities that need to be built around this FSRU to bring the LNG into the FSRU, to bring it in safely, right? And then you regasify it, you store it typically on the vessel, and then it comes out and then it's metered and it's checked. Um, so there's the infrastructure then to, to around that. Now, for it, just to give you some numbers to help, if it's helpful. So um, the International Gas Union, they, IGU, they would say that roughly um, a, an FSRU costs in terms of capital around 300 million. Um, you can take some of the old vessels and then convert them, but you're still kind of in the range of 250, 300. Those numbers obviously change with time and the complex, the technology being used, but just to give you kind of a feel. Um, then you will, you need to build the jetty and the infrastructure for the vessels to berth, and that can really range from around 100 to 300 million. Now that can really depend on the scope of the project. So, for example, if you need a breakwater um, for the safety of bringing in your ship and for the vessel to sit there safely, so some some need that, and when they do, that's typically quite a bit more of a, cap a capital expenditure. So. The, the environment and the location, all of those things can have a significant bearing on the cost of the project. So there, both of those things come together in terms of a capital um, expenditure. Now, what we have seen in the LNG market for regas floating regasification storage units is that if I'm going to set up a project, I don't necessarily buy the vessel. You have, you have the option. But for quite some time over this last decade, the, the, gen, the general LNG market, global market, went towards leasing your FSRU. So that effectively you are renting at a day rate for 10 or 15 years your FSRU. And then on top of that, you would ensure with the project team that you had developed the right infrastructure to bring the LNG in off the FSRU. And to bring all of those things together, that's, it's actually, it's, as you can imagine, these things are very complex. It's very specialized because you need to keep the LNG at minus 162 degrees. So this isn't just any kind of storage. This isn't any kind of vessel. These are highly specialized um, uh, infrastructure um, kits, frankly. So those two things come together. And then once it's being regasified, it will go through into your pipeline. So, for example, in Pakistan, in Karachi, it meets up with the Sui Southern um, gas connection. And then it's then through, it'll either go through pipeline through the, in Pakistan, through the transmission and distribution, if it's staying into gas to the power plants, um, and it can, it's used for gas, and then it's also used to create like electricity. So, so really, if, one, one quick yeah, interruption sure. here, um, which mm -hmm, uh, popped up in my mind, and I want to clarify for the, for the viewers, is that, these things, because they're so expensive, the storage units, regasification storage units, that also in a way explains why you need to secure long-term supply, right? Because if you think about it in layman terms, these are very expensive refrigerators. And the last thing you want is a very expensive refrigerator that you've paid for on a day rate for 10 to 15 years, sitting idle because there is no gas coming in, which is why you want to go to a Qatar or a long-term supplier of gas to make sure that this 
storage unit is being used at full capacity. Am I right in understanding that? That's a fair way of describing it, I would say. I mean, it's a tolling model, and most uh, um, regasification units use the tolling model. There are actually slightly different ones, but certainly the one in Pakistan, the way it's been set up, is that um, the, the developer has brought all this capacity, and then to be able to do that, to be able to fund what they were going to do, and as you say, make those long-term agreements with other international players, they needed to show that they had a commitment for the use of that capacity. So, um, so yes, typically there was, there's usually a connection. It's extremely rare. I can think of very few international examples where an LNG terminal has really been built with no supply um, coming into it, no none expected and non-contracted. Typically, it, there might be a bit of a delay, but usually um, the two things come together. It's unusual the other way around. Yeah. So another option, you can you have these floating storage and regas units. Another option is that you build something onshore. Now, to build something onshore, you are you are you will need to build very large. Um, well, they can vary in size, but typically you see the quite large storage tanks. But they also need um, really specialized engineering because they're trying to, we're trying to keep our LNG, as I've said, at minus 162 degrees, right? So um, the, the numbers vary depending on the size and the scope of your project. But I know of a few, and I would say a rough estimate, and this is also a number that comes from the IGU, is you're probably looking at around a billion dollars in capital to set that up. And it typically takes about three to five years. Again, these things really depend on scope and the size. So for FSRUs, they give you a flexibility of coming in quite a bit faster because we've seen some, it used to be around two years, we've seen some coming in even under a year as for example is the case with the Engra terminal in Pakistan. So you have them coming in faster because some of the long lead items have already been ordered, some of the vessels are already on order books and are being constructed, so the, the timeline is typically faster. You can also have, you know, you can bring in lease for 10 years, 15 years, and then the vessel can go and do something else. So it gives you a lot more options. But there are some countries who go, yeah, we're going for LNG. We, we've got the land space. We want to be building this. This is like a long-term strategic asset. We're going to, stick a we're going to build a land-based terminal and put that money in up front. So we've really seen the range in the last, um, you know, uh, yeah, I guess five, six, seven years. It's really been a lot. We've seen a lot of FSRUs coming to the market. Um, it's tapered off a bit, but we and we're still seeing energy terminals being built. So there's really still the mix. It really depends on a country or um, a company's uh, view of their the what the kind of flexibility that they need, frankly, and the cost and the timelines in which they need those things to be developed in. The one thing that you know, we've seen in the discourse in Pakistan in particular, and you've obviously seen this and we've talked about this as well, and I want you to explain this to the listener, is that a lot of times media commentators in Pakistan say, oh, look at these capacity payments that are being paid in the tens of millions of dollars. And these are, they alleged or at least insinuate in some instances that this is some sort of rent seeking going on and some shady business going on. Can you help the listener understand why the capacity payments are part of the financing system of these of this entire value chain? Yeah, I mean, I 
I don't want to speak too much to what commentators are or aren't saying in Pakistan. I don't think that would be wise. But what I can say is that if you are um, if you're renting a house and you rent it for a year, but you decide to go on holiday for a couple of months, your landlord doesn't say, hey, you know what? I'll give you your two months holiday because you're not in the house. You're not using it. That's fine. It's a gift. It doesn't really work that way. In, I'm just taking a, in a very smaller, simplistic life, real life model. Um, and that's really also how it works in, in, in setting up these really large investments. So, you know, um, you're looking at several hundred million for the FSRU, you're, whether that's leased, depending on how you, you, you set it up, whether it's capital expenditure or leased, but you, you've got that. Then you've also got the infrastructure that you need onshore. You, you need to ensure that you actually have somebody to back that typically to make that kind of investment. And it's something that just gets paid on a day rate because typically, it's not always, but typically the project developer, if they have leased the FSRU certainly, is themselves, they are themselves paying a day rate and they will pay that day rate for 10 to 15 years. Now, they, you know, if they're looking for funding or in, um, in all we, you kind of need that to kind of sit as your in, to, to ensure that the infrastructure, the risk takers, they get their reward and they also are, can feel confident to be able to take that kind of risk. Okay. Otherwise, so, they're sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars of exposure potentially. Yeah, and I think that the house example makes a lot of sense in in terms of simplistic terms. But I think most people will now understand that if you're renting a house, you don't get a six week break from your rent just because you're not there uh, six weeks of the year or whatever. Um, but you've said this a few times in this discussion so far is that these things are expensive. It's complicated engineering. It costs tens, if not mm -hmm. hundreds or billions yeah. of dollars. That's right. Um, so. If, if this is so expensive, one would argue, well, why not do the old school traditional method of building a gas pipeline, let's say coming in from Iran or coming all the way from Russia yep. into a country like Pakistan or what have you, wherever you are. Um, why, why do pipelines not make sense when this is so expensive and complicated to get LNG into a system? So There are, there are a couple of things there that I'll pick up. So the first one is around, let's let's start with your uh, your first question, which is around pipeline. So the, really the first LNG plant was developed in Algeria over 50 years ago. And the demand center for LNG, really in the traditional markets were Japan and Korea. And I mean, that distance is clearly too far for a pipeline to go, right? So one of the issues is really just a, technical limitation of pipelines um, and a commercial limitation that there's really only so far that you can commercially make sense to move that gas in a pipeline. The other issues is that there are sometimes um, geographical um, challenges of getting pipelines through um, across borders. And sometimes, frankly, there are geopolitical ones, um, which are, so within that context, what we have found is one of the reasons why LNG has become so widely adopted from, you know, it's in, when it was in, you know, it's infancy when it's just a few countries importing and exporting, very simple tram lining. And now we have um, a lot of countries importing and exporting. And the reason largely is because it provides access to LNG, it provides access to gas. So you're not waiting on somebody to agree 
to to commercial terms potentially for a pipeline or to be able to um, agree a, a route um, where, which, where this can be really tricky. And sometimes it's frankly also geopolitics that can make it quite hard. And so many countries around the world, really many, have used LNG because it has enabled them to access um, to access energy for their country and to do it in a in a faster way. And sometimes it's also just the simple economics um, that um, have driven those decisions. The second point that you made, and I just want to clarify, so the reason LNG is not necessarily, and I'll come to that in a minute, expensive in of itself, but the assets that surround the value, which are in the value chain for LNG, the, the investment is high. And because of that, it has driven certain contractual behavior and expectations in the market. So, you know, we see like this long-term LNG, the long-term contracts really coming out from a lot, you know, from that. There are other uh, more nuanced areas, which I won't go into because they're a bit too technical, but it, even in terms of the contractual mechanisms that you see in LNG that you don't see in any other commodity. And partly it is because of the, the way that the infrastructure is set up and what is needed to make that infrastructure work for both parties, for the buyer and the seller, and then obviously um, the transporter if, if it's a, if a different party. And, mm -hmm. and you look at country strategies and how countries have built up the LNG sector. So from your perspective and in your experience, like what are some of the reasons why um, countries have opted to build an LNG value chain at home? Like what are the drivers for that? Is it just that they need natural gas or is it part of a national security strategy? Um, just for the listener, help them understand why investing in this complicated capital intensive sector makes a lot of sense for many countries, including Pakistan. I would say really, we've really seen a range. So if we maybe we start with how LNG as a market even began, um, Japan was really one of the drivers for that as an import market. They had very few natural resources of their own, and they were importing a lot of um, fuel oil and well, oil product, right? And so this was their way of displacing some of that. So instead of buying, using all their consumption, they, they diversified and they came into and brought in gas. And the way for them to be able to do that was to be able to do that through LNG. So sometimes it's just about the energy mix um, and in a growing market and being able to plug and to maybe even displace others. Um, we've seen that, for example, um, in Kuwait, there were a couple of really strong reasons that have just so one of them was that they were um, they were consuming a lot of the fuel oil that they were producing, and so rather rather than produce that, they were able to import gas and displace that fuel oil for the market. And I will come to it, but LNG is generally cheaper than fuel oil, and so what they were doing was they were buying something that enabled it to be cheaper, but also selling it. Another really um, important reason that I really want to highlight is that it was much cleaner for them. And this is, you know, we even see this um, in, um, uh, in other countries where this is actually becoming more and more significant is that um, gas is one of the, is the cleanest form of hydrocarbon. It might not be the first reason, there are often commercial reasons, energy security, security of supply, that's certainly been a strong one in many countries that we've seen where they want to have the option 
to be able to buy um, to be able to buy access, access energy if they need it. They don't always use it, but they want to have that option. You find, but the, there are so many other benefits that come with it that we find that um, you know once you started in LNG, typically you find that it grows because the benefits around it become quite evident. So one of the things that I was saying um, is that the the price of LNG is usually cheaper than fuel oil. And I want to spend a couple of minutes explaining why countries choose LNG because it is typically cheaper than their alternatives. And this is actually has been true in the case of Pakistan. So I wanted to bring this to the table for you. The first thing is that there is no standard LNG price. Many people say, oh, Lord, what is the price of LNG? And unfortunately, there really just isn't a single um, answer for that. In our LNG market, there are several dips, different types of pricing that come into play. And the first one, which Pakistan is very familiar with, and actually still around 50% of the market still trades and still contracts, I should say, on oil-linked pricing. So um, that is when you are taking a percentage of your oil price and you say, this is based on these, um, this, this, I'm going to try and make it as simple as I can. Um, so it, they, yeah, so you'll say this is a percentage of the Brent price and you'll agree what months you're talking about when you're talking about your Brent price per se. And you'll say this is this percentage or that percentage. Now, why can I confidently say that generally LNG is cheaper than fuel oil is because the um, in one barrel, there is 5.8 MMBTUs. So if I said it, um, and that is like an energy um, a, um, con an energy measurement of content for gas. Yeah. So if I say, okay, this is a little bit complicated, so bear with me, but it's a really important point because I'm, I'm trying to describe as oil parity. So where you're saying that if one barrel of oil gives me 5.8 MMBTU, then I could also say conversely that one MMBTU has about the same energy content as 17.24% of the barrel. So I've just swapped the numbers around. So what that means is that if I'm paying less than 17.24% for my energy content, I'm locking in a discount, right? So if oil is at $100 and I am paying for that barrel 17.24%, uh, $17.24, sorry, then I am effectively getting the same value as of content of energy as I would in oil as I would in gas. So when we, when the when the when economists or others say you know that LNG is generally cheaper, it is because generally LNG is priced at less than oil parity, at less than seventeen point two four percent. So if I am buying LNG at twenty dollars per MMBTU, I'm paying over and above oil parity. Sometimes that happens because I'm not able to switch as quickly, but typically it's very rare in, um, in LNG for us to see that in the market where that stays at that kind of level, yeah, if oil is at 100. Now, obviously, if oil is significantly above, then your percentages can change. I'm just saying, assuming oil is 100, then these are some of the things to keep it simple.
So if I buy, for example, let me take any, let's say 14% Brent, then I'm locking in a discount from oil parity, which is at 17.24. And in fact, in Pakistan, a lot of the imports is residual fuel oil. And so actually even has a different oil parity. But I'll just say for it to keep things simple, fuel oil and crude, roughly around the same. And it's about one barrel to 5.8 and then BTU. So that is why, for example, countries that are exporting fuel oil want to buy LNG because they're locking in a discount to be able to sell more. And why for countries that were buying fuel oil for their energy needs are also happier with their LNG price because they know no matter what happens with the oil price, they've effectively locked in that discount. Now, once you bring the LNG to shore, you need to regasify it, you need to put it through your pipeline. Sure, there are costs to bringing it, what we call gas to the gate, so to the gate of your power plant or whatever. But there are also efficiency gains of using gas in power plants as opposed to oil products. So typically, um, even if you add some of those costs, you'd have some of those on the oil product side and on the gas side as you do for your transportation to where you need to use it. But even then, once it's in the power plant or whatever, it's typically it is more efficient. So that is where we have seen um, gas really growing in this space in power um, because it's typically you can lock in a discount. It's more efficient and it's also cleaner. So the air and the environment is also, it's better for everybody really in that sense. So that's in terms of the oil price. Now in Pakistan, the, um, the long-term contracts, the mid-term contracts and the spot contracts are bought with a, as a percentage of Brent. That is Pakistan's currently, that has been and still is their preferred way of purchasing LNG. So even if, um, and I'll talk about this now, but there we have different prices in the market. For example, you have Henry Hub, which is, did you want to say something? Sorry, I just not. No, okay. keep going. Okay, so um, if, you, uh, if you have like, for example, Henry Hub, which is the US um, gas price, that has a price that is really a regional US price. It can have really quite, can be quite volatile. So like in the winters, we've seen um, Henry Hub jump quite high. It, it really is. And then with U.S. exports, it used to be an importing country and is now exporting. So we've seen that the price of Henry Hub move. It has maybe now a bit more of a correlation with LNG, but largely it's a domestic gas, a U.S. domestic gas price. And when you're buying from it now, you would typically buy the U.S. gas price plus a fee tolling, which is a little bit like the model we talked about in the FSRU. You pay a tolling fee to be able to bring to, to effectively buy that LNG and then you need to transport it. Then you've got EU gas, which is European gas. So you've got NB, the national balancing point in the UK. Um, you've got Z Hub, which is in Belgium. So there, we would, typically those are kind of connected. Um, the interconnector connects the UK with um, the continent. And so you typically, you have your EU gas, and that's also, again, a regional price. Um, then uh, in the Far East, we have a different price again, and that is, to, known as the Japan-Korea marker. 
So that is JKM, something that um, I, some of you may be familiar with. That is typically still used really just as a spot price. And um, it's a fixed price typically. Um, it is, um, and it's, it's usually used, it really is used kind of as your Far East spot marker. So if I'm in Pakistan, I might get a discount to the JKM price if depending on shipping, depending on all kinds of things. So if I don't have to go all the way to the Far East to get my JKM price, I might be able to get it to Pakistan cheaper. But Pakistan has its own contractual constraints, its own contractual costs, which means that actually I might view it as a JKM plus market, so more than JKM or less. It really can depend on the supply demand of the market and my view of my other options, given the contractual um, offering that Pakistan puts in the market. So, but JKM is a fixed price. So recently we've been hearing $2.20 per MMBTU, $7 per MMBTU. And I have seen it where, you know, the market price has gone up and the spot price has been at over $20 per MMBTU. You see quite a lot of volatility in the spot market. Um, and, um, and it can move quite fast as, um, as we have seen just even in this year. So what, as a, you know, what happens is that Pakistan will get that equivalent of what a buyer, uh, sorry, what a seller is willing to offer based on the contractual terms, based on the supply and demand in the market or their view of the future supply and demand. And then they will convert it into a, an oil linked price, as that is what is, has, is Pakistan's preferred um, pricing in which they buy from. And again, just sort of going back to mm -hmm. our earlier simple analogy that these storage units or terminals are like giant refrigerators. It's not that if the spot price because of volatility is at super low levels, let's say it's around $2, um, that Pakistan can just go and buy a bunch of gas and bring it onshore and store it because there's a cap in terms of how much you can store. And it's not like you can add storage capacity on a whim. So I'm just just for the Pakistani listener here who've been arguing and listening in the media about this fact that, oh, when COVID sort of led to a crash in the global energy markets, Pakistan could have bought a bunch of spot gas for cheap and now it's buying it for expensive. How do you, uh, what do you have to say to that listener who's still a bit confused about the fact that, wait a minute, if this was so cheap back in March, April, May, why is Pakistan buying expensive gas at this point in time for consumption? That's a tricky question there. So I'm going to see what I can do um, in, in answering that. The first thing is that different companies and countries can go out to market and put out what they're looking to buy and when the period in which they want to buy for. So um, Pakistan um, issued a tender earlier in the summer and they came into the spot market to buy LNG. So they have, they have options to do that. Um, they will then need to see what capacity options they have, what they've maybe they what storage that is existing in the country. They've got two FSRUs there right now. What are what what terms are they on? What can they do in that space? And then, um, but it's not you know so. Uh, and then they they can decide when they think is the best time to be approaching the market. Now, one of the things I think that you were kind of touching on is that there is a limit to how much um, they can buy and they put LNG and you put it through the FSRU um, and then it, it's producing gas and it's going into your system 
Um, but it's, it's also constrained by how fast it can do that. So there is a technical constraint because it, you, there are no big storage tanks in Pakistan to put the LNG and to buy, you know, if that's where you were going. So based on help? your experience, yeah, that's very helpful. Mm-hmm. And again, like um, it's one of those things that it, it is a very technical and, and complicated industry. So it's helpful for people to understand that there's a lot that goes on in terms of just having a spot cargo come in as well. But now that you look at your experience in terms of Pakistan and the evolution of the LNG sector within the country, it's still fairly young. There's still a lot of uh, investment that is being planned or at least being talked about um, that needs to happen in the country. Obviously, we're headed into a third consecutive winter where gas shortages may be a reality. So how have you seen um, the the sector develop in Pakistan uh, in terms of where it started and where it is now today? Sure. So uh, maybe if I can say, I mean, having uh, grown up in Pakistan um, and having a, such a strong connection with the place, um, the access to energy part for me has been a really strong, um, is a really strong and compelling, um, just even personally, right? So seeing winters where there's very little gas, limited electricity. Um, in fact, a few years ago, when I was there on business, one of the uh, uh, one of the very one of the upmarket hotels where we were staying in, um, we asked to order dinner, and they said, "Well, actually, we only have these two things because we have no gas in the restaurant." And you know, um, the case for um, gas was so just actually made for the entire team. This is a country that has a significant um, and really uh, tragic. Uh, con- you know, a significant deficit and has, which, which has an implication for people. This is, um, you know, we need gas, we need electricity. And um, so in 2015, I, I believe it was, well, in the last five years, um, we've seen um, two terminals come up. The first one uh, was won by Enger. The second one was developed by Gasport. And um, on the back of those, we saw um, some LNG, uh, so international tenders, um, and also some um, deals that were struck under the G2G agreement. Um, and we, you know, in 2015, there were two international LNG tenders that took place. That was really the, the, the start of Pakistan coming into the LNG international market. Um, one of them was awarded to Gunvor, um, and um, and that kind of set the purchasing price for Pakistan at that time. Since then, we've seen um, another two tenders that have been put out for multi-year LNG deals that were again won by ENI and by Gunvor, um, and those were done at actually um, at, as per market sources at lower cost than the previous transactions, and so actually overall reducing the cost of LNG coming into Pakistan. And then since then, there have been short-term tenders, um, which we've seen. And and some tenders actually haven't been awarded because the view was that actually the price that was being offered was was not um, not competitive or not where Pakistan wanted to go. And some of them, as we've seen recently, have been awarded. So that's a little bit about kind of how it started. I could say a little bit about where we see it going, if that is of so what, that, what That's what like I was going to, to ask you about is like, where do sure. you see things going? Because just last week or a few days ago, there were reports that Exxon has backed out of its in potential investment in the country in the LNG sector. And 
of course, there's a lot of confusion still about these deals and how and why they're signed. So from your perspective, like where do you see the sector going and, and evolving in the coming months? Well, I don't know about coming months, but I mean, we really believe that Pakistan has got great potential, both in terms of gas and for LNG. I mean, gas makes up um, 50% of Pakistan energy sources is coming from gas. So it has a, a, an incredible um, infrastructure. So pipelines, it's there. So um, the uh, gas is, like I said, I mean, it, the air quality concerns for Pakistan are coming and gas is much cleaner. So I think there are so many different um, ways why we think that it's, it's important, but I think on, on another, um, just supply and demand, depending on whether you want to take constrained or unconstrained demand, we see a shortfall coming from the current four BCF per day, um, billion cubic feet per day, to around 6.6 .6 in the next 10 years. So this is a shortfall of really as much gas that is being used today, we see that shortfall developing in the next 10 years. This is really significant. So um, we really, um, we, we have seen, um, you know, Pakistan came to the market um, and we really believe that there is so much potential in, um, in this market um, that is yet to be realized. So in a way, it, it's it's one of those things where as the demand grows and as the supply constraints within Pakistan continue to grow as well, there is the need for investments and long-term thinking. And as we've talked about in this sector over this entire conversation, uh, the terminals, the units, the infrastructure takes time, it needs money, it needs long-term commitment to capital. And so if you're seeing a, a deficit build over the next 10 years, the goal is to start thinking about what we need to do now and then build build for the future and make sure that these supply constraints go away. Am I am I correct in, in sort of summarizing? Yeah, that? exactly. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, as a bridging solution to maybe pipe imports for pipeline, you know, become available or more domestic gas is found and developed, we really see that, you know, it's it's a fund it, it it's a fundamental part of Pakistan's future development. And it opens up a range uh, of options for Pakistani gas buyers. Now, I would say um, there have been several international parties that have expressed interest um, in investing in Pakistan and into to building new terminals um, and even investing and taking on some of the uh, capacity in the existing ones. And unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, that hasn't happened. And what we would really um, like to see is um, the uh, creation, you know, for the continued creation of an, a really, of an investment climate, a bit like to what you described, that continues to attract, you know, international LNG players to come to invest um, and to, um, uh, uh, to develop what is uh, has been started in fact um for shell we uh we were really totally thrilled that we signed a heads of agreement in taking some of the capacity for the um uh the first terminal that was developed unfortunately for a variety of reasons we that's um we've not been able to progress that as much as we would have liked um and we look 
for continued support from the government and from infrastructure companies to enable us um, and the the industry to come to Pakistan and to bring um, to bring gas to to the country. I think on on that note we can end it. The government support has been one of those you know veins of existence in Pakistan or or something that we need across sectors and there is a need for reform. There is a need for long term thinking and engagement. And one hopes that you know as this sector matures, that Pakistan puts the chronic energy and gas shortages behind it, particularly as the population grows, as the economy grows. Um, this will be needed. So, Laura, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I learned a lot. I think I have like three pages of notes as you were talking through um, this. So I think the folks listening at home will have learned a lot about LNG as well, because that in for this level of in-depth information is, is missing in the popular discourse and people are interested in understanding what's going on with this sector. So really appreciate you taking out the time and joining us uh, for this fantastic conversation. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for um, allowing me to share some of my thoughts. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.